Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> Welcome back to Girl on the Go, the podcast. I almost said top stories of the week. Just confusing myself. But speaking of top stories of the week, our episode dropped yesterday. And for all of you who haven't listened yet, definitely go check it out because we talk about the top political news stories that you need to know for the week. So obviously head on over there at some point. But to just really recap what we talk about six month mark of the war in ukraine and we provide some of the updates of what's happening with that currently and how the white house is kind of focused on that at the moment since the house and senate are in recess we also talk about the primaries that you need to watch this week we also talk about how the hill had an article that basically said the gop is worried about the midterms so go check it out go find out why and let us know if you have any questions that's the scoop that's the tea on that Um, other thing to discuss because i am obsessed obsessed i can't get enough can we talk about this corn song because (laughs) nothing has given me more serotonin in the last 24 hours than this goddamn corn song which if you guys don't know on tiktok there's a song going viral right now and it's a combination basically there's this little kid i don't really know the context of like why he was like eating corn and like where he is nonetheless he's getting interviewed and i'm like like why do you like corn and he's like it's got the juice and it's like this whole like really adorable little kid giving this like interview on corn and it's like the most wholesome thing and someone made like remixed a thousand percent like the best this is the best jingle of 2022 so far yeah and now it's going viral i've already made two videos with it i can't stop (laughs) listening to it generally it's like literally like not even 30 seconds long but it is so cute and i am obsessed and our entire freaking page for you page is going to just be corn videos and maddie's gonna kill me but i'm obsessed I also just would like to say that one of the ones I did just make, the advice stands on, and that is that if you are a candidate or elected official in Iowa or any other state that has like really big corn production or farm operation, you should absolutely use this. I would just like to say, I actually really hate corn. That's the irony of this whole thing. Oh my God, I love it. I had corn last night too, and I had this like delicious corn elote at this Mexican restaurant. And I live for corn. And that's why I love the video so much, just because I can just relate to that boy. And like, it's mm. so juicy and delicious. And I just relate to him and, you know, ha- his okay, passion behind corn. <laughs> Moving forward into some political stuff, because every single Tuesday, or sorry, Monday, mm. when we record our top stories, something breaks about the Trump drama. And we got a little bit more information yesterday. A New York Times story broke yesterday afternoon, evening, and about the Trump raid. And basically, here here's the story. Trump reportedly held on to more than 300 classified documents after leaving office which is so fucking crazy and i also want to know some context of like 
how that was even allowed has any other have any other presidents done this and like what are they allowed to keep what are they kept in the loop about like you know like as a former president like do they get briefings still you know like i'm just so curious about the dynamic of that you know what i'd be curious of also in that dynamic is if there's ever time where a past president helps brief a current president yeah well the whole transition period is that's how it's supposed to be but trump literally didn't do that because he was so against the fact that he lost but yeah there's like supposed to be like a huge like helping period where you are transitioning the next president into office it's like how the country has functioned until literally 2020 and 2021 but Anyway, so half of which of these classified documents were recovered in January, actually, by the National Archives, which was what actually alerted the Justice Department and ultimately led to the FBI search of his Mar-a-Lago property. And then the New York Times, their story that came out yesterday, cited multiple sources who have been briefed on the matter that the sheer volume of classified marked material recovered by the government is what triggered this federal criminal investigation into the president. So... 15 boxes turned over to the National Archives earlier this year included CIA, FBI, and National Security Agency documents involving national security. And then three days after the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, Washington Post reported that some of the documents recovered in that search were related to nuclear weapons, which we've talked about. So fucking crazy that this man like has this information. And like also like just back to the whole like paper versus digital moment, like how do we know this isn't like scanned and in, in his computer somewhere or in a, like his team has it somewhere has copies you know it's just like yeah the physical papers of it all is just another thing no to that's think about. A, that is a really really good point I also yeah. this got me thinking you know like when you read like a bill proposed legislation or whether it's in its final form and the formatting is so long and wacky is it really 300 pages or is it like 300 pages very important information but really if we printed this if we were paper saving you know how many pages would we really have Uh, those are these are the questions that haunt us you guys (laughs) (laughs) but what also haunts us is what really is like at stake here and i think a lot of like people have been like okay like fbi raid what is this actually gonna do my mom calls me like every week and she's like I don't think anything's going to come from this. Nothing ever. He never gets in trouble, blah, blah, blah. But basically what could happen is federal authorities are investigating Trump for possible violations of the Espionage Act, among among other statutes. Why don't we give a little definition moment for the Espionage Act? Ooh. Might as well. Very smart. The Espionage Act of 1917. She's old, folks. But it was an outgrowth of the federal government's efforts during World War I to contain not only espionage, but other public criticism of its war efforts. And so the fact that literally, can we just talk, like, this is what we said, like, when this first broke, was that this man who, like, has been impeached for, like, colluding with foreign countries is now holding on to top secret classified documents including nu- about our nuclear weapons and our nuclear programs what, just what is he what was he going to do with this what is he going to do with this you know i mean and the so fact that the espionage act is involved here just shows the weight i feel like that this carries and i i feel more confident than ever still not fully confident that like something could come from this because this is like i agree yeah I, because I have to say, like, during, like, the January 6th hearings, like, the f- first round of them, aka there's more more to come. But in that, I was like, well, yeah, a lot of this evidence is incredibly damning. But, like, as, like, the Republicans often call him, like, he's, like, Teflon Don. Like, everything's just somehow just bounces off him, even though it's, like, incredibly obvious. And there's enough evidence to be, that like, this guy's guilty crook. as shit. Yeah. Totally. And... So I was like, you know, I mean, this is great. I, I don't want to say never, given like even like if you listen to top stories, you'll learn that we are very surprised at how the summer went for Dems. So mm-hmm. like you never, never say never. But yeah. I just was like really, eh, okay, fingers crossed. But like I'm not, I wouldn't put any money on it, wouldn't be betting on it, wouldn't be a betting gal. But this puts stuff into a different perspective. I mean, the bottom line is that this man, everything that happened in his presidency, there's that. There's the first impeachment. There's January 6th, which literally he wouldn't leave office, literally tried to overthrow our government in order to stay in office. Now is like holding on to classified documents and like 
now is also endorsing and promoting candidates who are election skeptics into the role that oversees elections and waiting to see what happens this election to see who of his you know cronies also get into office that can ultimately help him steal the presidency in 24 like how it's again just like you know what's really so odd to me aka this just shows he is so clearly deranged is not that the people I'm going to describe aren't either in their own way but like if you you like power you like money like why why do you need to be president honestly that's not even like a great job for you like that's kind of shitty like you have to like as the u.s president you have to do shit like Mm -hmm. you are a workhorse like look at like literally like all the presidents when they started and when they ended and like how much gray hair they have by the end like regardless of whether you're a terrible person and you're doing a, a terrible job or a good person or not like it doesn't matter it's definitely you know, yeah. a stressful job. You're doing actual work in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And like, why, why do this? Why not just be some rich asshole, sh- like schlub on yeah. your yacht in the because middle of like, enough. he's no, never like, even you know been I mean? like a real rich person. He, you know, inherited no. money. Almost every single business venture of his failed. Fair Although enough. he is kind of like a smart scammer in a way. Oh, like, sure. yeah. You know, it's it's like but it's a certain we talk type about of intelligence. Criminals too. <laughs> He's definitely like well, this is what I think always confuses other people as well. Is like, is he just really that dumb, or is he like secretly smart? And he has us all tricked, and I feel like it's a little bit of a combo because like when you go down the rabbit hole of how many small businesses he's totally stiffed. Mm-hmm. The strategy there, basically, of like what I've read and makes total sense to me, is basically like you stiff these small businesses. If they try and sue you for the money owed, they don't have the money to actually sue you. They're going to spend more money in litigation than they are actually going to get from him. He creates these scenarios in which he scams people, commits you know crimes. His entire against these small platform was genius. Like though when he ran for president, he's literally like has videos or wherever he's saying he's a democrat in his past and he's never been this like crazy conservative bigot like in in his well, public bigot, facing yes, world but... uh, privately sure grabbed by the pussy vibes but like you know that's never really been his his brand and then when he stepped into the political space he became he knew what to do and what to say in order to get that base and get them so fired up and feed into that like echo chamber they've already been stuck in due to like fox news and facebook and all of that shit like he knew exactly how to communicate to them and how to make them loyal to him. And, like, for that, he's he's smart. And, again, I don't know if that's him or just, like, somebody who – his team who was like, this is how we do it. This is how we get the presidency. Right, because – see, that's the thing, though. It's, like, I also think that there's, like, a lot of people on his team that are equally, like, moronic. Like, some of the – I mean, yeah. Rudy Giuliani is a great example of that. But, like, there's so many people where you're, like, God. But it's, like, you know those just, like, crazy crime docs, like – or even just, like, fire Festival, like – that guy mm-hmm. is like the same vibe where it's like he's low-key smart and like you're also just shocked at the way he keeps getting away with shit you know yeah it but he's also super dumb but like also kind of smart but yeah it's he's you know there's you know those documentaries where you're just like how is this person just keep getting away with it i'm like maybe it's just their like manifesting skills they just like know they're like nope i'm never gonna get caught and they just keep manifesting that for themselves I think there has to be like a sort of like a lack of self-awareness, obviously. Like there's got to be some situation in which you just are so delusionally like thinking like even if shit hits the fan, you, you can't even think that would happen. And if well, it white, does, you male, just somehow, rich, like, privilege, yeah, I feel like can is. do that, you know? You it just, does. It really clouds the yeah well we just cracked the code but we did (laughs) anyways i don't know well you heard it here first sam and i are hopeful that you know something can come from this i i I don't know how it couldn't at this point with like all this shit that's coming out if it doesn't i'll just lose hope and everything but we need to get into our episode and introduce our guest ah naturally okay so if you listened to yesterday's episode you may have already gotten a hint at this so this is also your cue to start listening to our top stories episodes if you're particularly curious as to who the guest episode is going to be in a specific week because we do a little teaser we let you know in advance so you get to find out there and only there who the episode's going to be with so nonetheless this episode is with gabe roth he's the executive director of fix the court we look at the supreme court and various reforms that have been proposed have been discussed so whether it's term limits or expanding the court we look into all the different avenues or at least 
some of the key avenues that have been discussed again what those look like what the possibilities are there you know are there pieces of legislation that would support that are there representatives that are behind it what would happen in certain scenarios we go into it we Mm -hmm. go into it so if you walked away from june being like what the hell is the supreme court and you're scared for october 3rd when they go back into session again Mm. yeah well this is this is definitely an episode to gear you up so anyways further ado here's gabe We are super excited to chat. We have lots to talk about. Lots, lots, lots. But of course, we want to set the ground here. We want to give everyone the lay of the land. And you are the executive director of Fix the Court. And we want to know what the organization is about. What do you guys do? Give us sort of the run of show of Fix the Court. Sure. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Fix the Court's a national nonpartisan organization that I started in 2014 that advocates for more transparency and accountability in the federal courts and primarily in the Supreme Court. So that means we want things like cameras in the courtroom, we want term limits for the justices, we want ethics reform, recusal reform, we wanna know more about the justices travel and who's paying for it. We want to know more about their, have better access to their financial disclosures and to their public appearances and generally just bring the third branch of government kicking and screaming into the 21st century. Totally, I think that's so interesting actually to even think about the amount we just don't know about the Supreme Court. And I feel like it just goes under people's noses and cameras in the courtroom is such a interesting proposal that I would bring more transparency and just people more aware of the power of the Supreme Court, especially with everything that's going on right now. But to move forward, like, can you, how did you really get involved in this mission? Like what brought you to start this and what was really the catalyst and origin story here? Sure. So I, my background's in, in broadcast journalism, I graduated college in 2004 and took a gap year and then did grad school and got a degree in in, in broadcast journalism from Northwestern and uh, worked in local TV news for a little while, but really did not like it. Local news is, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. It's very depressing. And Mm. so I was always interested in politics and national stories. So I moved to DC and started working in political consulting. And just by coincidence, I had a lot of clients that had cases in the federal courts. Everyone from you know people that are trying to close down Guantanamo to dreamers who are you know trying to get citizenship or at least a path towards stat- legal status, voting rights plaintiffs, same-sex marriage plaintiffs. Some of these cases, you'd have folks in Texas and their case would be in DC or folks in Maine or California and their case would be in DC and they couldn't afford to travel. So they wanted to be able to watch their cases unfold live, just like they could if it was happening in a congressional hearing and they couldn't. So I started something called the Coalition for Court Transparency in 2012, did that for about two years and then changed to fix the court because it wasn't just this broadcast issue that made the Supreme Court the most powerful, least accountable part of our government. It's also the ethics and the recusals and the life tenure and such. Yeah, there is lots to it. And I feel like there's not just one fix to it all, definitely a few layers. So we want to get into some of those, including the code of conduct. So we've heard this sort of thrown around that there's a code of conduct for judges. What is this? Does this apply to everyone? Is this like one of those things where it's everyone but SCOTUS? Can you give us the run through there? Yeah, so the there are ancient laws that still apply today in the United States for all judges and justices. So the main one is you can't be a judge in your own case that goes back thousands and thousands of years to like the code of Hammurabi (laughs) and the Torah and you know it's it's you you can't have a case before you when you're a judge that choosing one side would impact you know would would impact your your portfolio or your sister's law practice or what have you so that's been part of federal law for 200 years and that law has been expanded but not much and what on top of that about 100 years ago a group of judges decided okay we need to to sort of say not only are there these things based in law where you can't be a a judge in your own case, but how should judges behave outside the courtroom in order to maintain the integrity of the institution? How should judges behave inside the courtroom to maintain the integrity of the institution? Should they, you know, be nice? Should they chat with the, their, you know, the colleagues before or after? Should they donate to political candidates? Should they, because right, there's no federal law that says a judge should or shouldn't donate to a political candidate because that would be against the First Amendment. Anyone can donate to a, p- a political candidate under the First Amendment, but a judge probably shouldn't, right? Because if mm-hmm. all political candidates 
in this country or 99.9% of them are of one political party or another. And you don't want to judge yeah. whether it be a Supreme Court justice or a lower court judge, you know, giving $500 to the Democrats or $1,000 to the Republicans. So there are these, they're called canons. There are five different canons, no political activity. Judges should comport themselves in a certain way, et cetera, which sort of describes what behaviors the public can expect the justice judges to have out on and off the bench. And it, that does not apply to the Supreme Court for a very stupid reason, which is that code was written by lower court judges. So it's sort of like saying, okay, you know, if there's a pitch clock in the triple A baseball, the Mets and the Yankees can't have a pitch clock. Even if the pitch clock works, because the pitch clock was invented by a minor league affiliate, it can't be used for the big league. So that's that's SCOTUS's mm, reasoning. Okay. Because it was written and promulgated by lower court judges and lower court judges mm. under the Constitution can't tell the Supreme Court what to do. We we don't abide by the by the code of conduct for US judges, which okay, I think that's bullshit, but fine, write your own. It's yeah, not right, that hard. Right, I mean, I right. sat down and did it in an afternoon and like it's yeah. you know, mine's not operative, but it's just not that hard to say I'm a Supreme Court justice. These are the, you know, I have different rules and, 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 and concerns because there's only nine of us and, you know, there's different roles being at the top versus being in the lower courts. But still, you can write a code of conduct and, and yeah. make it. Absolutely. I have a question. Seems like there's a template, you know, like yeah. they could just, you know, a little example to help get them on the road there. Exactly. Yeah. I had a question, too. It's kind of like twofold. But like for the code of conduct, what? What is, I guess, a punishment if you break the code of conduct? Like, how does that function? And then also, does that mean that the Supreme Court, like, literally has no type of, like, guidelines, rules, like, expectations or, a, like, code of conduct, period? Like, nothing along those lines. Yeah. So so answering your second question first, the, the Supreme Court, if you're a justice, if you're one of the nine, you're supposed to follow the federal recusal statute that says you can't be a judge in your own case. You can't be a judge in a case that you've previously participated in as a lower court judge. You can't be a judge in a case if you know some of the material facts, like if you're a witness. You can't be a judge if you're, you know, if you own IBM stock and it's an IBM case or an IBM affiliate case. And there are other prohibitions like that. The problem is there's no way to enforce it if you're a Supreme Court justice. The only punishment, to answer the first part of your question, if you're a Supreme Court justice, is the high bar of impeachment and removal. And only one justice has ever been impeached and he wasn't removed. And and the idea of getting 67, I mean, you could probably get a majority of the House to, to impeach somebody like the president, for example. But getting 67 senators to remove a Supreme Court justice is, is just not going to happen. It's, it's only happened about for the lower court judges about a dozen times in our in nation's history. And that's for like embezzlement, like really, really yeah. egregious stuff or like serious sexual harassment. Yeah. So the Supreme Court, I don't I don't see it happening. If you're a lower court judge and you don't go by the code, the punishments are sensitivity training, a censure, a, a temporary removal of some cases from your docket. There are all sorts of embarrassing things that, that can be done when you're a lower court judge because it's very rare for punishments to be doled out. So when they are meted out, it's a big deal because it's just, it doesn't happen. Even the punishment, I mean, not even talking about impeachments, but the other sort of censure that yeah. reprimand, they're, they're very rare. That happens like once a year. So when it happens, it is, it is quite embarrassing. But Supreme Court justice, <clears throat> even if I'm, you know, just to give an example, Justice Alito and I own Phillips 66 stock, and there's a Phillips 66 case and he hears it, nothing's going to really happen because he's not going to get really? impeached over it. But, you know, he, under federal law, He's not supposed to hear the case, but who's going to stop him? I mean, that's yeah. That's I was going to say who? Yeah, is there like replacement judges for those moments? There's, like, there's not. I mean, there should be. Obviously, I yeah. mean, the, the part They're of the like substitutes. There top, should be. I mean, in. there's there's yep. you know, Justice Breyer isn't doing anything right now. David Souter <laughs> isn't doing anything right now. These yeah. when they're recusals, why, there should be. Why is that like that? Like, why is there some like shortage of judges? Like, why are people so anti? like circulating these judges in and out, especially when there's issues and conflicts of interest. And, you know, like, why, why is, why do we think like this about these justices and judges? That, that's, that's a really, really good question. They're, 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 justices should not be thought of in this sort of, you know, magisterial or, or majestic, sorry, not majestic, majestic, oracular, or like they're philosopher king. They're not. Anyone yeah. could, any, any, I could name, <clears throat> 
hundreds of individuals in this country who could do the job of Supreme Court justice. All the lower, so there are you know, essentially two tiers of lower federal courts, the courts of appeals, of which there are 13 courts and about 180 judges. And then below that are the district courts, the federal trial courts, and there's about 680 judges. Any one of the appeals court judges could definitely do the job of Supreme Court justice. I bet any of the 50 chief justices of any of the states, we're not even talking about the state, the federal system's like 2% of justice in this country. Yeah. It gets outside he outsized headlines. But if you look at the state Supreme Courts, easily the chief justices, if not many of the justices of the 50 state Supreme Courts could do the federal court, could do the federal Supreme Courts job so that only nine you know that was just it was like such hubris with ruth bader ginsburg when she said in 2014 you know who could president obama replace me with who would who would uphold these ideals i don't know about 200 different people ruth <laughs> yeah. and, and you died and there's yeah. been a major change on the court so right. it's just it's it's this level of hubris that that yeah. justices and an insularity that has been i think really yeah, toxic so for true. the institution yeah, like I feel like it's that's the the grand thing that brings everyone together. They feel sort of the same way about this. But I feel like even the punishment for like the lower courts, those yes, embarrassing within the context of your field, but like no everyday person that isn't super familiar yeah. with the court system or legal careers is going to be like, oh, a censure, that's terrible. They're gonna be like, I literally need to Google that. I don't yeah. understand its application. And yeah. okay, sucks for them and Everyone but also, why do we care about embarrassing? Tenure. Why yeah. do we care about embarrassing judges? Like, if they do something wrong, they should be held accountable. Like, why Correct. are we worried about embarrassing it's not, them? It's exactly the punishments like, are, are super weak, like super yeah. weak. They don't fit the um, crime. They literally don't. They fit don't. The crime. They don't. They're judges that have. Yeah. You know, you generally what happens if it's bad enough, we'll get a judge to resign. So, like, there was a judge in Kansas that was found to have had a history of sexual harassment. A judge in California, the third. Oh, he died before he was able to resign. But yeah, the the, the recent judges who have been Judge McGee of Kansas and Judge Kaczynski in California on the Ninth Circuit, they both resigned before the process could take place. So generally, that's that's the the what happens is that the judges resign. And if you resign, I mean, that is embarrassing. That being said, you still get to collect your pension if you're of a certain age. And if you're not of a certain age, you get the money back that you put into the pension. And I'm working on some legislation to remove that pension, but it hasn't passed yet. So yeah, the punishments definitely don't fit the crime. And there's more, I think, that can be done to, to discipline the judges and ensure that there's apt punishments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like most HRs are more insane. Than <laughs> Literally yes. more intense than... I am forever just bamboozled. But we do want to just clarify a few terms for everyone that's listening. And that is starting with ethical oversight. When thinking about that term, what's just sort of the the layman's way of looking at that? Sure. I think I think it's really three ways of looking at one is a lot of bodies in our government, state government, federal government have a neutral party an ombudsman an inspector general that's saying that's saying, you know, if you have an ethical question, like, I don't know if I am, I, if I'm a judge, and I don't know if I can sit on this case, because you know, maybe my wife's sister's cousin owns stock in one of the litigants, you should have a somebody <clears throat> You should have somebody out there, somebody who you work with that, that is an expert in the field of of, of ethics and HR and and, and that yeah. sort of thing. It's that you can ask a lot of that. That person does not really exist at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has something called the Office of Legal Counsel, which has like two or three lawyers, and they don't really do a lot or cross the justices very much. the the federal the the lower courts they're overseen by something called the Judicial Conference, and they have a committee. Oh, uh, that that sort of discusses ethical issues, but again, they don't really do much. There's no inspector general like they there is for the Department of Justice or Department of Defense. You know, during the Iraq War, the inspector general was constantly coming out with reports saying, you know, y'all gotta stop wasting a hundred million dollars on ice trucks, like, and 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 that really made an over time made some somewhat of an impact. But that person does not exist within the federal judiciary. It's also ethical oversight with your with your colleagues. I think that you have to have a, a, a good enough relationship. If I'm, you know, Justice Sotomayor, I should be able to go to Justice Kagan and Justice Jackson and even maybe Justice Gorsuch and say, look, you know, I'm thinking about this. Should I hear this case? And then it's sort of just a personal moral compass. Right. I think right. that we want our justices and our lower court judges to be moral and to have good, good characters. Because as you pointed out, there is not a lot of punishment if our justices and judges falter ethically yeah. or morally so there really needs to be that internal compass so they don't even get to that point to begin it's so with. crazy that we like 
it's so much like hypocrisy. Like we value them and they can't, they're irreplaceable. They're the highest core in the land, nonpartisan, just like non-biased. And then there's also like no moral compass or like no accountability or like nothing to even be able, like that actually warrants holding them to that stature. I just... And even if you like ask them to do it or bring it up, it's, it's just, it's, they take like, it no. so personally. They're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. me? I never. Why are, what? They're so sensitive. It's, they're very sensitive. <laughs> so they are sensitive. very sensitive. We hate that. Another term we want to clarify is conflict of interest. Can you explain that a little bit too? Sure. So if, if I'm a judge, I generally, judges are between the ages of, I don't know, 37 and 107 and have had <laughs> have had careers before they've gone into into judging before they were nominated and confirmed to be judges they have families they have financial investments they have previous work histories and they might based on those things based on their life experience and what they have in their portfolio who their relatives are they might be have a rooting interest in a case that could come before them so i mentioned you know if my sister's law firm comes before me when I'm a judge, I need to recuse, I need to disqualify myself because that's a conflict of interest. If I own, I think I said IBM or whatever, if I own IBM stock, uh, if they come before me, I need to recuse because if I rule for IBM, that could increase their stock price, which would increase my the value of my portfolio. So anything that okay. that that is a, so those are direct conflicts. And then, then they're, they're sort of like larger, sort of more indescribable, inscrutable conflicts that I believe exist and need to be talked about. And the one that I've been sp speaking about most frequently recently is with Ginny Thomas and her husband, Justice Clarence Thomas. Ginny was working to undermine faith in the results of the 2020 election and outright overturn its results, while her husband, Clarence, was voting on and ruling on cases related to the 2020 election and related to the existence of the January 6th committee that's studying this attempted coup. So you know, there wasn't a direct one-to-one, -one, right? It's not like Ginny was a elector from Pennsylvania or a Senate candidate from Virginia or, you know, in President Trump's cabinet, let's say. But she was ag agitating with those individuals to try to get there to be an overturn, you know, changing of, of who won the election. And, you know, I think to a neutral observer, though, there's not that one-to-one -one example that you see in, in federal law in terms of what constitutes a recusal necessarily, the perception of bias is bias. It actually does say that in federal law. It says if you have a, it's, it's called a reasonable person standard. If you are a reasonable person, and I believe we're all reasonable people here, and we understand what happened in the Ginny and Clarence Thomas situation that I described, we would probably want Clarence Thomas to recuse from all January 6th and 2020 election cases based on his wife's activities. Absolutely. I would support that. <laughs> A thousand percent. Well, we want to talk about also SCOTUS broad strokes. There are lots of issues going on with SCOTUS and some things that should be changed. And we're curious from your perspective, what you feel like some of those big ticket, if you will, items are. Like, what are those things? You have a little to-do list and you're like, we need to make this happen for the Supreme Court some checks and balances, what do those look like? Yeah, for, for me, the, the number one issue on that list is, is life tenure. Life tenure was bestowed to the founding generation of justices because King George was firing colonial justices, judges, and that pissed off the colonies. So when they were writing their, their you know, the Massachusetts constitution predates the US constitution, they said, no, we can't be fired unless you have, you know, the, the phrases, judges shall hold their office during good behavior. And basically that meant, <clears throat> and that dates back to an old Latin phrase that was used in England in like the 16th century. But basically, unless you really fuck up, you're gonna have the job for life. And that made it into the constitution. And life has changed in the 230 odd years since the constitution was ratified. Not only are people living longer, but the role of Supreme Court justice is, is so much powerful that it was envisioned even 50 years ago, let alone 230. And there's paralysis between the branches, all the major decisions. I mean, if you were to tell me when I was growing up in the 90s that, you know, marriage and healthcare and who wins a presidential election and whether or not we can respond to climate change and women's healthcare and whether or not there's going to be a gun on the subway. If you told me all these things in the 90s that this would be decided by nine lawyers in robes and not the people's representatives, I would have said you're crazy. But that's exactly what's happening. So to me, there's no reason that justice's life tenure needs to be on the Supreme Court. 
I'm working with members of Congress and they've introduced a couple versions of this bill that says, okay, you get to keep your life tenure on the Supreme Court, but only 18 years of which shall be on, sorry, you get to keep your life tenure in the federal judiciary, but only 18 years of that can be on the Supreme Court. So after 18 years, you rotate to a lower court, a circuit court, you know, there's one in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Atlanta, Denver, et cetera, major cities in the country. And you, you and that's, this is what Sandra Day O'Connor has done after she retired. This is what David Souter has done. About half the justices who've retired in the last 80 years have, have, have done this. And so with 18, with nine justices, 18 years, you'd get a new justice added to the court every two years. And it would be also it would be predictable. You wouldn't have the justices on the Supreme Court simply there because some random 80 year old died you know like it's that's right. basically who's getting the picks is when it's super morbid but the picks are right. happening based on when octogenarians are dying so this 18 years with new, a new justice every two years means that every presidential term gets two picks so we just know every two years it's a new justice every presidential election you're voting for the president and that president will get two picks as opposed to you know, Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump were both presidents for four years. One of them got three justices, one of them got zero. So that's not mm. exactly equitable. So, yeah, that's a, so term that's limits, I think, point. would be the number one, the number one ticket item that I'm most interested in. Totally. And that with the 18 years is the 18 years sort of designed with the idea of making sure that one happens every two years, or is there any other magic to like the 18? I mean, it's high in Judaism in Hebrew. <laughs> No, there's no reason. Yeah, no, there's, it's, it's uh, just, it's not my idea, right? I mean, this is something that has been kicking around for several decades. But I think 18 years, it's three Senate terms. It's long enough. I mean, what I always I'll often say is it's long enough to make your mark on American law, but not so old, so long that you're becoming long in the tooth and, and, and pass and pass your prime. I mean, in every generation, there's been a justice who has lost their marbles, has had cognitive decline before they left the court. The most recent generation, there were several justices that were getting very close to that cognitive decline. Rehnquist, Kennedy, Scalia, Ginsburg, but they all died or retired before that happened. The previous generation, sadly, I mean, I could go through the list, but this this is a real thing that happens at the Supreme Court and the lower courts, but I think 18 years would help guard against cognitive decline. And we know that yeah. that's something that we, we, we don't wanna have our, our top judges compromise Totally. Cognitively. That's very yeah. fair. Um, very logical. Or falling asleep. And very common sense. Yeah, we're falling asleep. Uh, but, That's true. Yeah. I I know. We talk about this, too, just with, like, all these be it politicians or the Supreme Court justices. Like, why do you want to keep working when you're 80, 90? Like, that's just crazy to me. Like, go rest. Go chill yeah. by the beach. Like, do something. And then I also wanted to point out that I'm glad you talked about lawyers in robes. Because if you want to add to any of your policy solutions, just maybe a little, like, little tiny amendment to one of them just be like changing the costumes like those gotta mm. go I, love um, that I also think that could like demystify them that can kind of change like what would you have this... them wear just regular clothes like oh. everyone else in the government okay. you know just I like, like that that could also just change people's minds that like they aren't holier than thou you know yeah i like it optics maybe it's all optics. add it in there let us know if you do it but just this little <laughs> sneaker a little sneaker policy moment. Well, next we want to talk about the relationship between SCOTUS, the media, and the public. Again, just the same theme. But can you talk about what is a broadcast media ban and what is the impact of, of this ban? Sure. So there are no cameras allowed in the Supreme Court courtroom. There's no audio recording microphones that are allowed as well. The only journalists allowed in the Supreme Court courtroom are journalists who show up with pens and papers. There are, I mean, some from, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS, but they're only allowed to, you know, use a pen and a paper like the Times and the Post and the Journal and all the others. And that's just, you know, it's it's something that to me is, is just kind of sure. ridiculous. The, the, the very least, SCOTUS does record the audio of its oral arguments. It only hears about 65 or 70 cases a year, and each case only lasts about an hour on a single day. So, you know, this is something that would be very easy to film. You totally. know, it's not like a trial where there are juries and witnesses mm -hmm. and exhibits. It's literally two lawyers. Sometimes it's three or four and, you know, certain ex whatever exceptions. But generally it's two lawyers, nine justices. You can have a camera the size of a fist 
hanging you know above the justices and one next to the lawyers and it would be very easy to manage but they've never allowed that a couple of folks have tried to sneak you know pen cameras into the supreme court and have that's been a whole thing but you know i it, it, and i've been to scotus and i've got to tell you that first of all it's a pain in the ass to do it because as i'm not a member of the media i've got to show up at 5 a.m and wait in line mm -hmm. and the court hears cases from October to April. So a lot of those months are very, very cold standing in line at the at outside for, for five hours. So, I mean, sometimes they let you in at like 7.30 if you're lucky, but oh, um, lucky. <laughs> yeah, sometimes if not, it just depends how early you get there. And I mean, it was just, it's, it's, it's awful. But, you know, broadcast media, would if you had a broadcast, more people would watch, more people would yeah. learn about the court, more people would be participating in the civic life. The mm -hmm. audio that is recorded by the Supreme Court itself is given to, I think, I mean, it depends on the, the month, but usually the Associated Press or NPR or C-SPAN, and they will broadcast it out live to the public. But that live audio feed has only existed because of the pandemic since the start of the pandemic. During the pandemic, the whole building was closed down. So the Supreme Court's like, okay, we'll, we'll allow for live audio, but that's only been a pandemic era change. And there's, been, there's no guarantee that that live audio will continue to exist in the fall once all the pandemic restrictions are lifted. And what happened pre-pandemic is they recorded the audio at SCOTUS, but SCOTUS would only release it on Friday afternoons. So you'd have these cases that were argued Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And by the time the audio came out, it was old news. So no one was using it. So it's pretty much useless. So lower courts of appeals, state Supreme Courts, I think something like 42 out of 50 state Supreme Courts allow cameras in the courtroom. So it's kind of ridiculous that SCOTUS is the laggard and the idea that, you know, we can't figure out a way to do this in a respectful, unobtrusive yeah. way in 2022 is ridiculous to me. Totally. Totally agree. And for changing this, how do we go about doing that? Like, is there is this a situation where there needs to be some legislation? Does this need to come from them? How does this change? No, it's a great question. And it's it's hard to know what, what, what the answer is, to be honest. There is legislation. It hasn't passed Congress, but there's been bills introduced, I want to say for 20 or 25 years now. But for whatever reason, I think because the justices are very, very good at lobbying because they do and they do lobby. I know that for a fact. I, I think the justices have just said, we don't want these bills to advance. Like we res you know, respect your ability to introduce them, but we don't want them to advance. And I think part of that is a generational thing. I think that if you look at the court, there's a real generational divide between the justices that were born in the, I guess Breyer's gone. So the justices that were born in the 40s and the 50s and those that were born in the 60s and 70s. So I don't think that some of the younger justices like Barrett or Jackson or Gorsuch or Kavanaugh or maybe even Kagan would have problems with cameras in the Supreme Court. But the older justices like Alito Roberts, Thomas, not sure where Sotomayor is. I think she's probably with the, okay with the cameras folks, but you know, I think it's a real generational divide and, and, and for, for people in, I mean, and I have no idea how you guys are, but let's just assume we're all in the same generation. People <laughs> in our generation, we're just like, video is ubiquitous. Yeah. Like totally. I, I only process information generally, like, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and social media is optimized for video. I'm like constantly yeah. watching video on my phone. Obviously, TV's on all the time. Well, not right now, but TV's <laughs> on all the time. And so, like, we process information when there is sound and when there are pictures. And so, yeah. and, and we're always on video for whether we like it or not. And so, to me, I think that's just something that is not part of the older generation. And when there's a full generational turnover and you've got, you know, Gen Xers and, and millennials on the cord versus boomers and up until Whatever. recently, you had a silent generation, right? <laughs> yeah. I and mean, Breyer was part of the right. silent generation. You know, so once that turnover is complete, I think we'll get cameras in the court. I do think that you're going to have to get all nine of them to agree. I mean, yeah, and I and I don't don't think that the bills, the cameras in the courtroom bill, and the Supreme Court Cameras Act, whatever they're called, I don't think those will pass. Just because I think that the justices are just very good at, at lobbying, and they really want to be able to set their own policy. I Which is a shame because to... I lobby for this this stuff all the time. But like, I was gonna justices say, I are would... better lobbyists than I am. Yeah, I would love to kind of get also a snapshot into the lobbying that surrounds the Supreme Court, be it, you know, nominating new justices to now, like, you know, the issues that we were seeing them, these cases that they're taking up are like very issue based, very political. Like, what does the lobbying look like behind the scenes around the Supreme Court? Because I think a lot of people probably don't realize how heavy it is 
because they're supposed to be this like non-political body but like can you give us a behind the scenes snapshot of what that looks like sure so i mean the thing is nowadays right the supreme court has a very discretionary docket it chooses what it takes the vast majority of the time that there have been various laws that have been passed, but about 30, 40 years ago, there's a law that basically that passed that basically said, you're the Supreme Court, you can take whatever cases that you want. So it's no coincidence that we, you know, with this extreme conservative majority, we had a environmental case, an abortion case, and a gun case, like right off the bat, as soon as the 6-3 supermajority was constituted, basically, or the first full term of the 6-3, which was this past term that, that, that just ended. A lot of the lobbying happens at the lower court level, uh, and you'll, you'll have individuals who are friends with the justices or are frequent contributors to amicus briefs, which are just friend of the court briefs or merits briefs, petitions or merit or other petitions that, that reach the court, you'll have these high powered lawyers on the briefs, right? So if I am, you know, John Roberts and I'm getting, I get a million briefs, like 99% of what the justices do are read briefs. But if I get a brief and I see that Paul Clement, my good buddy from back in the George W. H.W. Bush days is on the brief, I'm about 20,000 times more likely to read that brief. So if you are a a conservative organization like the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, which took the gun case to the Supreme Court, or the there was a praying football coach, a coach that prayed at the 50 yard line, Mm -hmm. he was told to stop, I didn't want to stop. Like, if you get Paul Clement on your brief as the praying football coach, you know that, okay, this is something that the conservative movement really wants to bring to the Supreme yeah. Court and believes it has the votes to overturn whatever the restriction against praying of the 50 yard line was. So there's all so that lobbying occurs a lot based on these relationships and based on like, there was something or an investigative piece called echo chambers that was that came out about eight years ago. And it basically said, here are the 60 lawyers who put together these briefs, and they get about, you know, 14 to 15% of their cases heard by SCOTUS. Whereas every other lawyer in the country gets 0.00014 or 15% of their, so it's, it's really a, a person to person thing. And ba- you know, the, the, these lawyers are, are former clerks. They, they themselves were almost on the Supreme court. Maybe they're a former judge or they're married to a judge. So the, the lobbying happens right when the case is filed. But if you have these high powered lawyers and you, and, and they're, which are not cheap, right? They cost sometimes like $2,000 an hour, insane numbers. You know, there's money if you're, and if you're a justice reading the the brief and you see their name, you know, there's money behind it. And you know, there's a a movement behind it to get that case to you. So I think that's part of what a lot of people don't realize. Like these cases don't appear by accidents, right? Just like the affirmative, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. About amicus briefs. Like, yeah. Is there a good reason why that exists? Or like, (laughs) is like, is that like really problematic that, you know, you just take up cases because you know people involved like isn't that problematic and is there it a is. good reason like conflict of interest sense? round two like exactly you know, exactly no there's huge conflicts there i think that amicus briefs initially came about because the supreme court is asked to rule on a lot of things that they frankly don't know a ton about there are there's a long history of supreme court cases just to give one example like tennessee versus mississippi and texas versus oklahoma where states are suing each other over water rights and like there's an aquifer in, under Memphis, I think, in Tennessee, and it like also goes under Mississippi, and the drinking water in Jackson, but also Chattanooga comes from there. Like basically, yeah. there are these cases, and it says this in the Constitution. If there, if two states, it randomly says this, and the Constitution doesn't say very much, but it does say yeah. if two states sue each other, SCOTUS, it has to go to SCOTUS. It can't, you can't yeah. go to a third state. So, none of the justices are water experts. Yeah. Recently, there was a case about cell phone tower data. Right. If I'm a, a criminal or an alleged criminal and the cops want to know if I was, you know, near the Franklin Avenue subway stop, well, they can pull my cell phone records because there's a cell tower right there. And if there was a ping at a certain time, that would show me show that I was in a certain place at a certain time, which made me more likely to have committed whatever crime that they're trying to solve. Is that a search or seizure under the Fourth Amendment? I don't know. And neither did none of the old ass justices. So there, there were amicus briefs that said, this is the history of the Fourth Amendment. This is what a cell tower is. So there are, yes, so there are cases in which amicus briefs and having these sort of supposedly neutral third parties, or sometimes they have an, you know, an opinion, right? Like the Fourth Amendment, maybe it's a, the ACLU is, the ACLU is often doing amicus briefs and they have a lot of expertise in searches and seizures, obviously. But the process has been abused. Like for the most recent abortion case, there were 150 amicus briefs. Like you don't need to hear from 150 different 
yeah. you know, or say they're 75 per side. You, you don't need 75 different ways of like trying to figure out like whether or not, you know, the state of Connecticut in 1960 considered a fetus being a person or it's just, it was, it was a little overkill. And a lot of it is done as a fundraiser for those third party organizations. Look, we got, and SCOTUS, their rules are very lax. So they pretty much accept every brief. And then these groups go and say, oh, look, we got our brief accepted by SCOTUS, give us a million dollars. And it's just sort of feeds itself. Mm -hmm. Nothing like a donation to really keep the people going. Well, fixthecourt.com slash donate in case you're curious. Oh yeah, there's, <laughs> there we go. there's a good plug. We love a plug. Okay. Well, on another note, we do want to talk about expanding the court because this is another thing everyone's been talking about recently. I feel like there was some chatter even a few years ago about it, but now it's obviously back on everyone's radar. What's the story with doing this? How would that work? And like, is there actually a pathway for this? Or is it more of just one of those like ideas where people are like, that would be great, but like it's <laughs> never going to get off the ground? Yeah, I don't see it getting off the ground. The, the thing is, is that it theoretically could be passed by simple legislation that you just pass a law and says the Supreme Court, the current law says the Supreme Court is nine justices and the revision would say the Supreme Court is 13 justices. And then as soon as that goes into effect, Joe Biden would have four justices to pick and they would be seated on the court. The problem is, is that currently there are only three senators that support that bill, right? There's a, it's called the Judiciary Act of 2021 and you need 60 senators to pass laws these days, unfortunately. Three total? Uh, three total. Three total are co-sponsored. Markey, wow. Warren, and Smith, I want to say. So the two Massachusetts senators. So Democrats don't Smith, even want this? They don't seem to want it. And so, you know, I think that's, that speaks volumes, right? They don't yeah. think, they don't see a path to it. And they feel like it is a good talking point for Republicans, right? The Democrats, they want to defund the police and, 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 and teach CRT and expand the Supreme Court, right? It, it fits on a bumper sticker. And expanding the Supreme Court is just not popular with the vast majority of the country at this point. I mean, it's pretty even among liberals, but, you know, and, and who's to say even, right? So let's say the court was expanded tomorrow. Well, what if Mitch McConnell has, and the Republicans have control of the Senate? There's an election in a few months. The Republicans could easily get control of the Senate back. It's a tough, it's a tough map for Democrats. And so if they get the, the control of the Senate back, okay, so Biden has four picks, but the Republicans aren't going to vote on them. They've already done this in 2016 True. with Obama's pick Merrick Garland. They're just going to sit on them. Mm -hmm. And then when President Ron DeSantis comes in on January 20th, 2025, he'd be more than happy. <laughs> he would be more than happy to take those four seats that the Democrats passed and give them to four arch conservative judges yeah. so, so basically it's like supreme court the only way that it would work if put into place is also if term limits are put into place otherwise forget about it and if anything really it's like it's it's a circle back to the term limits it's hopefully like yeah more I mean, powerful hey. than that i mean obviously now i'm just you know blowing smoke no, over great. here but tell that tell that to liz warren yeah no i i i, <laughs> I mean on the, look there are bills that would both expand the court and put term limits on them they're a little complicated. It deals. It's a lot. There's a lot of math involved because if you have 13 justices and each of them been serving 18 years, and you've got to have a new justice added to the court every 16.6 months, but sometimes that's during the summer and the just and Congress isn't in, and sometimes it's like right before an election. So like, I have a like several Google spreadsheets to try to figure this out that I send to members of Congress and staff because like when they're they're, they're like, oh yeah, I like this idea. And they're like, oh God, there's a lot of math. And so I got to do it for them. And I send it back out, which is fine. <laughs> I'm happy to. Yeah. But the point being that there's, you know, it's it's one of these things that's like a panacea, right? It, it, it just, it sounds so great. You know, yeah. I, we even say like Medicare for all. Wow. Wouldn't it be great if every American had healthcare? Probably, but like, it would also be great not to wait 17 hours in a doctor's office, like in a lot of places that have socialized medicine. Like, I, I think yeah. there are definitely pluses and minuses of each of one of these but people vote with their feet and they vote and, and the yeah. fact that the only there are only three democrats on the senate that want to do this right now there was an article i was actually reading this morning where like another dozen were like okay hey guys have you changed your mind and to the democratic senators and none of them have mm -hmm. you know look i'm not saying that term limits is at this point any better i have zero senators on my term yeah. limits bill i've got plenty in the house but you know, just for a long-term way to, the goal here is to, to reduce the power of the court. It's not yeah. to make the court, in my view, a super legislature, like a second Senate that will have yeah. a ever-increasing number of, uh, of justices 
that you know when the republicans are in power they'll add and the democrats you know all of a sudden we'll have 86 Just, justices yeah. my my <laughs> wish is to a, a a more powerful congress representatives we actually vote for in a less powerful supreme court and yeah. term limits i think is a way to do that and court expansion is not question quick question do you guys also or is there any type of like reform around the nomination process yeah i i it, it's a little tough because with nominations i i look at nominations like a congressional election or the presidential election like you're voting for this person and i don't it's a little like because we're a c3 501c3 versus 501c4 it's a little iffy like we don't oppose or support specific candidates for the supreme court we'll do vetting of them or whatever but we're not going to say yay kavanaugh no kavanaugh whatever but in terms of reforming the process you know I, i've thought about this for a while i don't have any great ideas the one idea i, I have that's mediocre is to flip the process around Right. So currently the justices just thinking about the Supreme Court justices, because it's a multi-day affair, lower court judges, it's usually a, a morning or an afternoon, but the Supreme Court justices, it's a multi-day affair. So instead of having these like very long question and answer sessions where the justices don't really say anything over the course of two days, after which there's something called questions for the record, where the senators will write to the nominee and all 22 senators will write like 50 questions and you know the nominee will produce a thousand page document with every you know my idea would be flip it have the questions first written questions first limit it to 20 questions per senator and then of those 20 questions five of them can be asked re-asked or expounded upon during that two-day q a session so instead of having the this long rambling disjointed really frustrating q a and then having this these questions for the record that are written out, flip it. So we sort of know going in, okay, these are going to be the, the issues that are going to be contentious. These are the issues that are going to be expounded upon and just sort of limit the, the question to things that have already been asked, but just ask them in a more open way. So that's, that's my idea. But what idea. about like the way, like even just looking at like, it's not, good. it's not a good idea, like, but it's an idea. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, just with like <laughs> Obama and how he couldn't even get, you know, uh, his, his confirmation through. Like, is there any type of like reforms that people have thought of that could yes. potentially alleviate that issue? Yeah, I, I don't think there's a way to do it without, I mean, this is kind of depressing. I don't think there's a way to do it without amending the constitution and I, and that's probably not gonna happen. The, the one idea that we had recently was, it's in and it's in the term limits bill, it's HR 5140, the Supreme Court Term Limits and Regular Appointments Act. In addition to the 18 year term limits, it says, if the Senate doesn't act within 120 days of an appointment, the Senate forfeits its advice and consent role, and the nomination is assumed to be confirmed. So it says, mm -hmm. shit or get off the pot in 120 days, and you know if you don't like if you don't like it, then then vote them down, but at least give them a vote within 120 days. I don't frankly believe that that section is constitutional, which is a bit problematic. But that's you know. I mean, George Bush gave a speech saying 180, it should be 180 days. So, I mean, there yeah. is, there has been over the years consensus that it's this, this is ridiculous, but yeah. you know, when George Bush said it in 2002, it's a very different world than us talking about it in 2022. The hyper-partisanship right. has only increased 20 yeah. fold since then. Right. Yeah. Well that and the ropes are my two okay. reforms that I'm hoping you get, you get to work, start working on. That's my lobbying for the day. So you, Cause you know, the, the Supreme court justices of Canada wear red, red robes and wigs. That's giving Voltori from twilight and I'm yep. not, that's worse. Who red from robes. what? <laughs> In twilight, the Voltori, it's like the, it's like the vampire judges. <laughs> oh, they're vampire judges. That's I gotta look this up. <laughs> I'm yeah. absolutely deceased. And you'll see, and, and you'll actually be like, wait, that's accurate. But yeah, they can just wear we'll work on suits the outfits. and we'll power work on suits it. like everyone yep. else. There's the got to be something fun to it, too, though. Like, there's got to be a moment, but like. They can still have a gavel. Do they have gavels? In no. Well, Chief no? Justice Roberts has a gavel. Actually, no, Chief Justice Roberts doesn't have a gavel. He, he, the marshal has a gavel. She'll gavel mm. in the session. So, yeah, the justices okay. don't even have well, gavels. Maybe they can have like little like brooches or something cute. Or something. Okay. Those are like, so dated. Well, yeah, yeah just members little, of Congress have pins. They're like little pins yeah. that members of Congress mm -hmm. wear that denote their, that help people know that they're a member of Congress. So yeah, I'd be fine with, with suits and pins. Me and Sam will work on outfit and accessory yeah. options for okay, you, but just do. maybe, maybe start working on getting the ropes out of the okay. <laughs> on it. <laughs>
But in the meantime, while we, you know, obviously brainstorm a few ideas here, mm-hmm. how can people get involved? How can people, <laughs> very important policy. How can people support what you guys are doing and try and get some of these reforms, ropes aside, across to the finish line? Sure. So we're obviously on social media at Fix the Court on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Fix the Court. Email is always a good way to get in touch with us. Info at FixTheCourt.com and fixthecourt.com slash donates. Also a great resource, as I mentioned, we're a 501c3 tax exempt organization. And yeah, I mean, we love hearing, you know, new, like er- earlier today, I was, I had a call with somebody that I've known for a while talking about term limits. And he came up with this idea that I hadn't heard of. And it's, it's like, you know, it's really exciting talking to you guys. I mean, beyond the yeah. road, we're just talking about talking <laughs> through, talking through the conflict Not of interest, the ropes, like, the uh, you know, yeah. just talking through this, you, you think of other ideas and new totally. ways of attacking problems. And, 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 you know, we love hearing from folks. So yeah, check us out online and, and, and via email. And if people Definitely. want like some more action items too, of like, can they reach out to you? Like, do, can people call their reps on some of these issues? Yeah, like- absolutely. Calling calling your reps is, is really important. There's, you know, on fixthecourt.com, there's a list, probably need to make it a little more prominent, but thank you for the reminder of the different <laughs> bills that we that we support and, and want to get through the House and the Senate. There's a bill called the Supreme Court Ethics Reform and Transparency Act, which would just modernize their whole conflict of interest rubric that hopefully is going to get a vote on the House floor, no, nothing like it has ever been voted on even by either House of Congress. So it'd be really exciting if we get a vote. So that's, we got nine new co-sponsors on that today. So yeah, there are a lot between ethics and, and term limits. There are a lot of different bills that are that are floating around that could use some more co-sponsors. And, and we'd love to to get your supporters from Girl on the Gov to, to, to call their members. Call your members, Absolutely. ask for no more robes and major SCOTUS reforms. There it is. Done. Well, <laughs> such an important conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really glad we got to talk about all of this in such a crucial time for this topic. But yeah, thank you. Thank you thank so much you. for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.